Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. How's everybody doing? Good. Good to see you. Great time of worship to be singing God's praises. And I want to just say welcome to everybody here who's watching online. You know, good, good. we have a church online uh, that, that people watch and, and they're not here, but you are still a part of our church. So I'm looking right at the camera. I'm glad you're here. Uh, glad you're still a part of this church. And so welcome. Um, we are going to be studying Luke chapter 23 today, and we're going to be starting in verse 13. And, and as we turn there in our Bibles, uh, I really want to talk about the U.S. Treasury. Okay, just, uh, just bear with me, okay? Did you know that if you have a torn or ripped dollar bill, any, any currency that is 50% unidentifiable, that you can turn it into the U.S. Treasury and they will send you a replacement? Did you guys know this? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know this as a, as a, you know, when I was little and I did this when I was a kid. So I had this dollar bill and it was like torn, like nearly torn in half, barely hanging on. It was tattered and it was crumpled up. The, the face and the dye were, were fading. And I told my mom about it and she's like, well, just send it into the treasury and get a new one. And I was like, you can do that. She's like, yeah, yeah just do it. So she gave me a stamp and an envelope and she said, write a letter and then mail it in with the dollar. And so I did. And then a few days later, I received a, a letter in the mail from the U.S. Treasury, right? And I felt like a big deal because I was like, <laughs> the government talks to me. But anyway, uh, if memory serves me uh, correct, it, inside was like this formal letter that was like, thank you so much for sending in this defective currency. We appreciate your business. No one ever writes to us. So this was a huge um, <laughs> unexpected um, joy, but it, it was that kind of letter. Like, thank you so much. And then attached to that, was this crisp brand new dollar bill, okay? And, and, and when I say crisp, I mean like it was choice. Like it was, it was perfect, okay? There weren't any creases anywhere. The edges were perfectly straight. The colors were vibrant. Like George Washington never looked so good, right? And, and I just remember being amazed, like look in the feel of this brand new dollar bill. Like some of you guys, if, if you go to the bank and they, you know, you, you make a withdrawal and they give you their money, like that's in their drawer that's been ironed and, and it's all warm and you know what I mean? You know, you know what I mean, right? Just really, really good. You don't want to spend them. You don't want to crease them because you're like, this is, this is awesome. Like, I, I don't even want to use it. I just want to look at it. So the sermon this weekend is called The Great Exchange. Okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to study the story of Jesus and Barabbas. Barabbas was this wrinkled, dull, torn, worn out dollar bill. And Jesus was the shiny, crisp new one. Sorry, my headsets. There we go. Um, and in this story, we're going to see that this exchange happened. Okay? Jesus and Barabbas, they switched places. They were exchanged for one another. And we're going to walk through this, this scandalous story, and we're going to see why we should be weeping with joy and worshiping God over it. Okay? But as I always like to do, would you please pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for loving us enough to, God, give us this amazing book that we can know you better. I pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, you and you alone. 
God, may these words that I speak not be from me. No one needs to hear Brenton's opinion. They need to hear your gospel. They need to hear your truth. And so God, I pray it would be all of you and none of me. And God, that my friends here would would know you so much more better and worship you so much more clearly. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, now it helps me to to think about this passage because of the way my my brain works um, as like this final courtroom scene, okay? So just imagine with me if if we're all in a courtroom, okay? Um, The judge is up in front and he's in his black robe. I'm not the judge. I am also with you. We are the people of the court. We are just like the onlookers, okay? And up to this point, all the major points of this trial have taken place. Okay, the defendant has been arrested. That was when Jesus was captured in the middle of the night and then the disciples fled and then Jesus was taken into custody. The charges against the defendant have been declared. That was when the chief priests and the rulers and whatnot, they they brought up charges against Jesus before the Sanhedrin. The opening remarks have been made. The witnesses have testified. They were false witnesses that we learned, but still. And so all that's needed to do in this trial is for the judge to find the defendant guilty or not guilty and then pronounce a sentence. And, and in this first verse, after much deliberation, the judge, who is Pilate, calls attention to the proceedings. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. So he's talking to, to everyone here. Okay, all, all the people who have been accused, uh, who have accused Jesus of sedition and breaking their law and treason, as well as like the onlookers and, and any possible cohorts or friends that are still present at this time. And so what he's about to say is addressed to all of these people, the whole group. And it's important to remember that, you know, if, if we're sticking with this courtroom analogy, the lawyers, the defendants, the plaintiffs, the witnesses, the crowds, what are they? They're all Jewish, Right? which means that most likely they were all raised on, educated in, and taught to follow the Torah. Their whole lives revolved around living and existing under Jewish law. Now, we might have Jewish heritage in the room, but I I think it's pretty safe to say that none of us are are fully devout practicing Jews. And and I don't say that as derogatory. If you are, great, awesome, glad you're here. Um, But we as American Christians, we don't really understand the Pentateuch or, or anything like that because it's just not something we often study and dive into and dedicate our lives to. And that's okay. I get confused at it at times too. And so before we move into more of Luke 23, we should familiarize ourselves with Deuteronomy 19, okay? Because at least for our purposes today, it would help us as the crowd to understand the context, the historical and foundational backdrop, okay? So what we're gonna do is we're just gonna read Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 15, okay? A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judge shall inquire diligently, and if the false witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity, which means don't, don't feel bad for these people. 
but shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Okay? So the law is pretty clear here. <laughs> Excuse me. If you have a dispute, you need to have more than one witness to establish a charge, which is a key point. Okay, keep that in mind. Under Jewish law, you need to have two or more witnesses to say you are guilty. Then you're going to go before the, the priest and the judge who should examine these matters more closely, and then they're going to investigate and weigh all the evidence. If the defendant is guilty, then you're going to charge him and punish him. If the defendant is innocent, then the ones who charged him will actually take on that punishment. Okay, this was the law. Okay, so in the case with Jesus, let's just review. Okay, he was charged with all of these crimes, blasphemy, sedition, misleading the people, rebelling against Rome, all of those things. Then they took him to the Jewish priests and convicted him. And then they took him to the Roman judge where they're trying to sentence him to death. And so he was then brought to Pilate the first time. This is what we talked about last week. And Pilate called him innocent. And then Herod got Jesus, beat him some more, and then he sent him back to Pilate. And that's where the story is right now. That's where we're picking up. Okay, so let's hear what Judge Pilate, let's hear his verdict. Okay, verse 14. And Pilate said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Okay, so here's our first point of, of the sermon. Uh, and it's a pretty easy point to, to, to conclude to. Jesus is innocent. Right? But what's so cool is that in these few verses, we can actually just see how innocent Jesus was. So the Roman judge, Pilate, declares Jesus innocent. He said that in our passage last week, but he had some issues, and so he sent him to Herod to get his second opinion. And so when Herod sent him back to Pilate, if Herod would have kept Jesus and, and punished him because it was lawful for him to do so, then it could be said that Herod found Jesus guilty, but since Herod sent him back to Pilate, that says that Jesus was innocent, that Herod saw no reason to keep him in custody, to keep him punished. And so according to the Roman leaders at the time, the judges, Herod and Pilate, Jesus is innocent against Rome, okay? However, he's also innocent according to Jewish law. Like remember what we just read in Deuteronomy, Pilate and Herod both say he's innocent. That's now two witnesses, two people who advocate for Jesus's innocence. But not only that, these men are the acting judges. And these judges did exactly what scripture tells them to do. They examine the evidence, they listen to the reports, and they find nothing wrong with Jesus. Jesus did nothing wrong. And so by every available standard, not to mention the fact that these witnesses were lying, but by every available standard, Jesus is completely innocent. Now, luckily for the Jews, Pilate doesn't know this last part of scripture, but the chief priests do, and, and, but they don't seem to care about that last part. They're, they're just so in it to kill Jesus that they're willing to take that risk. And, and furthermore, I think the people that would have upheld that law, that would have upheld Deuteronomy 19, also wanted Jesus dead. And so what's likely going on is, is these, these guys have no fear of repercussion because everybody's all in for killing Jesus. But the important thing for us is, is that Jesus is completely innocent, right? He's been officially exonerated of all charges. And so what Pilate says he's going to do is he's going to punish Jesus and then release him. 
Now that sounds odd to us because we're like, well, I thought you just said he was innocent. Why would you punish Jesus if he's innocent? We see Rome, while he was innocent of any charges, he clearly upset the, the homeostasis of everything, right? And so to keep the peace, to make sure this doesn't happen again, Jesus was going to be whipped and scourged, which is no light reprisal, right? This is a severe form of corporal punishment. And then half dead, they would release Jesus and then move on, right? And Pilate hopes that what the scourging would do is, one, it would correct the course of Jesus. In other words, they're saying, I, I, don't, I don't care who was wrong or who was right. You're in my custody, so I'm just going to beat you so that this doesn't happen again. And then maybe you'll correct whatever it is you did. And then two, I'm going to beat you in front of these people so that they're going to go, oh, you know, he was reprimanded. He was punished. He was properly disciplined by Rome. Therefore, I'm okay with it now. We're good. Let's just move on. So that's what he's hoping would happen. Okay. Now let's go to verse 17. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, you might notice that verse 17 is not in there. And that's not a mistake. Um, the, the translators, some of them have put verse 17 um, after verse 19. Some of them have omitted in the old original manuscripts. And so that, that's all that is, is, is they're just saying, hey, some manuscripts have this, some manuscripts don't, but my Bible has it right here. So we're going to read it right here. Okay. Um, here we go. Verse 17. Now he was obliged, that is Pilate was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. So apparently there was this ongoing tradition where a prisoner would be released at the festival. And there's a lot of ambiguity as to what this means. Like, you know, was this, was just a Jewish tradition that the Romans just kind of kept going because they wanted to keep the peace? Or was this something that the Romans instituted because they wanted to earn favor with the Jews? Is it tied to Passover? Some say it is, some say it isn't. But honestly, all of these are just side issues. Um, and, and so what, whatever it is, what we need to know is that for whatever reason, this was a common practice in those days. One person would be pardoned by Rome and then set free completely. Now, what, what's interesting is that as of verse 17, Jesus is still technically in custody of Rome, right? He's still a prisoner because he's being held by Pilate. And so he would be eligible for this catch and release program. And not only is he eligible, but as they just said, he's innocent. And so he's kind of deserving of it. And so the implication that we get here is that when Pilate says he's going to whip and scourge Jesus and then release him, it was like Pilate saying, okay, look, I'm going to choose Jesus to be the winner of this lottery. He's going to be the one that I release, and he is going to be the fulfillment of that tradition. Which is why in verse 18 it says, but they all cried out together, away with this man. Like, in other words, take Jesus out of our sight. Like, don't release him, take him away, and release to us Barabbas. To which Luke here adds a little bit of backstory. This isn't something that they would have said out loud, but this is like what everybody in, in the audience knew. Like, everybody knew this in the back of their minds. Barabbas is a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And so here's our second point. You know, the first point, Jesus was innocent. That was pretty clear. The second point is also pretty clear. Barabbas is guilty. Like, there's no question. And, but look at the contrast between Jesus and Barabbas. Like, we know that Jesus is innocent of all charges. We've been saying that forever. Jesus is the Messiah, so we know he is innocent. We know he is the spotless lamb. But Barabbas is completely different. Like, look at the other Gospels. These are written accounts 
by four different men at four different times, four different purposes, but they all mention Barabbas. And they say he's not a good guy, but they, they kind of mention things a little differently. Matthew says that he is the notorious prisoner. Okay, have you guys ever seen Three Amigos? Yes? Come on, come on, people. There we go. Three Amigos. Do you remember when Chevy Chase was like, infamous? Infamous? Like, that's who Barabbas is. He is the infamous prisoner. Like, people know he is not a good dude. Mark says he was in a gang who rebelled against Rome, and that gang committed murder. Luke here kind of says the same thing, but Luke's wording kind of implies that Barabbas was the one who actually committed the murder. So he's not guilty by association. He was the culprit. And then John's gospel, John calls him a robber. And so according to just Jewish law alone, Barabbas is guilty of the sixth commandment, which is you shall not murder, and the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And you could probably argue for a few other big 10 violations, like honoring his parents and things like that. And so according to Jewish law, he is guilty. And because of the severity of those crimes, he is guilty in the Torah, or the Torah, and he should be put to death. But not only is he guilty of Jewish law, but he's also guilty according to Roman law because he was an insurrectionist, right? He was a rebel. He incited a rebellion against Rome. And since he's already in prison, we can safely assume that he was captured and convicted of that act. He's like on death row for a reason. Like everybody knows it. No one, no one here is arguing for the innocence of Barabbas. No one is saying that he was wrongly accused or falsely tried. That, that's not even in question here. Barabbas is doubly guilty according to both standards. Okay? And moreover, let's just look at his crimes. Like, did you guys notice? It's exactly what they've been accusing Jesus of. Like, Jesus was accused of misleading the nation, which is what Barabbas did. Jesus was accused of breaking Jewish law, which is literally what Barabbas did. So you, you couldn't get a, a, a better opposite than Christ, than Barabbas here. Do you know what I mean? Here's a few other things. It's just interesting. We knew quite a bit about Pilate and Herod. Like last week, we went into the history of Pilate and the history of who Herod was and fathers and everything like that. We know very little about Barabbas. Like we know his crimes, but we don't know who his parents are. We don't know what city he's from. We don't know if he's married or if he has kids. We don't know any of that. And even his name is a little curious. Barabbas, Bar Abbas. Like for those of you who know Hebrew, Bar is the word for son. You know, like Simon Bar Jonah, you guys heard that? That means Simon, son of Jonah. Simon Bar Jonah, okay? So, so Bar is son. And Abba, of course, is the band who sang Take a Chance on Me and Dancing Queen, right? <laughs> How often do you get a reference Abba in a sermon, right? <laughs> Gotta do it. No, Abba is the Aramaic word for father. And so what you have is Barabbas, son of the father, or son of a father. So it's like he could be anybody here. It's, it's almost like naming him John Doe or Mr. Smith, okay? So now pretend that you are Pilate. And, and you have these two prisoners, okay? One is Jesus, who's this innocent, calm, gentle man, non-threatening. And the other 
is this blatant, violent, rebellious, convicted criminal. And then you find out when you want to release one of them, the crowds actually want the more violent one. Like, wouldn't that surprise you? Like, not a little bit, like a lot of it. Like, let me ask you a question. If you were like swimming in the ocean, and I was like, hey, if I open this gate, you can swim with a dolphin. Or if I open this gate, you can swim with a hungry great white shark. Which one would you want? Right? You'd be like, no, give me the dolphin. And this is, this is why Pilate responds in such complete confusion here. Because when given the choice between releasing a clearly innocent man versus a clearly guilty guy, you would think this is like a no-brainer. And so verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more. Like, are you sure? He was desiring to release Jesus. And of course he's desiring to re release Jesus because Jesus wasn't a threat to Rome. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Now, it may surprise you to know, but the cross wasn't Rome's only means of execution. Like there were many other ways they could have killed Jesus. But the crowds don't ask for any of those. Like they ask for the cross. And so why? Why do you think that is? Now, it, it, we should know that Jesus was destined for the cross. Like this was God's will all along. You see, in the Bible, we see something incredible about the imagery and the significance surrounding the tree. Like in Genesis, Adam brings about the curse of sin through eating the fruit of the tree. And then Deuteronomy 21 talks about how a person who hangs on a tree is cursed. Then Paul says that Jesus became a curse for us because he died on a tree. And then in Revelation 22, John talks about the tree of life and how blessed those are who have access to that tree. So essentially, because the tree was a mechanism with which sin and the ultimate curse entered into humanity, then it's only fitting that on a tree or the cross is where the curse and humanity would be redeemed. And so this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.45 that Jesus is the last Adam who births a new kind of life for all who follow him. The man who restarts creation so to speak. The cross, the cursed tree, connects Jesus to Adam's rebellion in the Garden of Eden. And the cross is actually what the whole Bible has been leading up to. The great theologian John Calvin, he taught, of all the possible ways in which Jesus could have been executed, he was hung on a tree to demonstrate, demonstrate the covenantal curse that rested upon him for our sake. This is why it was God's will for Jesus to die on a cross. But, but none of these crowds, the Pharisees, they, they didn't know that. I personally think, and these are my thoughts right here, so by all means be good Bereans and, and check me on this, but I think they were looking to the cross because it was the most brutal way to execute someone. Like they hated Jesus so much that they wanted him to die the worst possible death. You see, on the cross, Jesus would die publicly. You know, oftentimes victims would hang on the cross at eye level on a busy street. You know, we see movie portrayals where people are like looking up at the cross and really they were looking right at him. Victims regularly lined along the main streets 
as, as demonstrations of, of Rome's power and as a public deterrent for their crimes. And so if Jesus was publicly executed, what would that then communicate to other Messiah hopefuls? On the cross, his death would also be excruciating. Like not just painful, but excruciating. Which is actually where we get that word. It means out of crucifying. They wanted Jesus to suffer unbearably, to struggle to breathe as he had to pull himself up on nail-ridden hands and feet. His back so whipped and, and beaten and exposed raw flesh that as he would try to stand and he would pull himself up, his back would scrape across this rough wooden plank as he struggles to take a breath. Until exhausted, he would slide back down, doing that again. Until he was exhausted. Eventually too weak to stand and he would suffocate to death. On the cross, Jesus' death would also have been humiliating. Because not only was he suffering in public, which is humiliating in and of itself, but he would have had his crimes written above his head for all the world to know why he was there. And so people would pass by and they would read what he was accused of and they would mock him and they would spit on him and they would enjoy watching this man struggle just to live. And on the cross his death would be long lasting. Like crucifixion wasn't like a few hours of suffering. It's reported that oftentimes victims would last days on the cross until they just finally succumbed to this torture. And so out of their hatred and out of their corrupt hearts, they shout crucify, crucify, crucify Jesus. That's, that's the only death that we desire for Jesus. You know, those other, Rome, I know you got some good stuff. Like you could behead Jesus or you could tie him up and get him eaten by beasts. That's too good for Jesus. He deserves the worst of the worst. He deserves to suffer. And again, Pilate is just completely baffled here. Verse 22. A third time he said to them, why? What, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate's like, guys, hold on, dial it back a little bit. Let, let's just, let me just reprimand him really, really harshly. Okay, let me, let me whip and scourge him and let that be the end of it. Let, let's just, let, let's make that settle it. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And then one of the most heartbreaking sentences in the Bible, and their voices prevailed. The crowds grew louder and louder and louder, and eventually Pilate caved. Now, I do want to point out that this appeasing of the crowds was, was a typical Roman practice. Okay? Rome often overlooked the rights of an individual for the sake of keeping the peace of the whole. So one time, it's reported that Rome actually executed one of their own soldiers because that soldier burned a Jewish scroll. And it wasn't against imperial law to burn a Jewish scroll, but because that soldier was inciting a riot in Jerusalem or in wherever he was, uh, that they were like, okay, we don't want that to happen, so we're just going to kill you to keep the peace. Like he didn't break any laws, but they still executed him. So Pilate, in keeping with Roman practice, listened to the crowds in order to keep the peace. Because one man's innocence 
is not worth a war or a rebellion. Now, let me be clear on this. This doesn't absolve Pilate in any way. Like, he's still guilty for killing Christ. But we can at least kind of see, okay, that's, that's why he did this. Verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Which means that what they wanted to happen to Jesus would actually happen to Jesus. And so here's our third point. Jesus swaps with Barabbas. Like everything that should have happened and been given to Jesus was given to Barabbas instead. Jesus was the one who should have been released. But it was Barabbas who was set free. Jesus was the innocent one, but Barabbas was pardoned. And they declared him innocent instead. But it also works the other way too, right? Everything that should have happened to Barabbas was now going to be exchanged and given to Christ. Barabbas was the one on death row, but Jesus took his place. Barabbas was the enemy of the people. Jesus was now the infamous one. Barabbas was the enemy of the state, but now Jesus was going to die his death instead. Barabbas was guilty, but because of this exchange, Jesus was pronounced guilty. And this is our, our last point. This is an utter scandal. Like, this is a scandal. Like, the word scandal is defined as an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong and causing general public outrage. And like, even 2,000 years later, I, I read the story and I'm like, I am, I'm enraged. And we all should be. Like, how could this, how could this actually happen? Like, this is corruption to the, to the highest degree. This is morally reprehensible and legally despicable. Like, the whole thing is absolutely scandalous. Like, like I don't like it when things don't go the way that they should. Like, I can't watch the news or stay up on current events too much because I get so enraged at all the injustices that I see. If, if we were to talk and go to lunch together and you would tell me about a coworker that maybe was, was cheating the system and they were getting a leg up, I would be mad for you. So much so that even after you went home and just moved on, I would be at home stewing on it because it bothers me. You know, when my, when my kids are in line and some kid cuts in front of them, my kids are great Christians and they go, no, no, I'll forgive you. And I'm like, no. Tell that kid to get in the back of the line. Like, you shouldn't cut. It's not good. Right? I get mad. All of these feelings come flooding in when I read this story because my God was crucified because of the evils of this world, because of corrupt religious leaders and their, them lying through their teeth, because evil dictators didn't have any integrity because of sin. This is heartbreaking like and outrageous. It, it doesn't make any sense, Right? I mean, am I alone in that? Now, to all of you who are taking notes, I want you to do me a favor, okay? Look through your notes, and every time you see the name Barabbas, I just want you to cross it out. Just cross out Barabbas. But above that, I want you to put your name. Our first point is not going to change. Notice that because... Guess what? Jesus is innocent then. He's innocent now. 
He's perfect, he's sinless, he is holy, holy, holy. Jesus will always be the perfect, righteous, spotless lamb of God. Always worthy of praise. But our second point, it does change now, huh? Instead of it reading Barabbas is guilty, it says, I am guilty. I'm the one who broke God's law. I'm the one who's plagued with sin. I'm the infamous sinner now who deserves to die on death row. And and if it's hard for you to see yourself as guilty, like, let, let me ask you a few questions, okay? Raise your hand if you've ever lied. Even once, just raise your hand. Okay, I see some hands not up. Congratulations, you now have lied. So you can raise your hands now, okay? <laughs> raise your hand if you've ever stolen something. Like, like anything, even, even something as insignificant as a, as, a, as a kid, like a pencil or a penny or even a toy, right? Come on, don't be shy. Raise your hand. There we go. My hand's up. Raise your hand if you've ever hated somebody. Well, Jesus says, if you hate someone, you commit murder. Raise your hand if you've ever looked at someone with lust in your heart. Jesus says, if you do this, you commit adultery. And so what we've seen by our own admission, myself included, we are all what? Lying, murdering, adulterous thieves. Welcome to church. Glad you're here. See, by by God's standard, we're all guilty. James 2.10 says this, for whoever keeps the whole law, so if you keep the whole law, but fails in one point, just one point, guess what? You are guilty of all of it. Paul says in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Church, we are Barabbas. You know, our sins might look different, but our place and our position is the same. We deserve judgment. But one last favor. Go to the fourth point. Remember it says this is a scandal. I want you to cross out the word scandal. Just cross it out. And write in the biggest and most joyous letters you can think of. Write the gospel. Because this is the gospel. Like, look at our new third point. Jesus swaps places with us, with me. And he does this out of his own love and grace, according to the will of the Father. Like, he wasn't being nice to Barabbas. Barabbas did nothing to deserve this. It's not like they they held up Jesus and a really, 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 really good person and said, okay, guys, choose between these two. No, Barabbas did nothing to warrant release. Like, he wasn't a model prisoner. He wasn't a model citizen. Let Let me ask you, as we read this passage, what did Barabbas say? Nothing. He didn't have any lines, right? Which means that he just stood here convicted. Utterly guilty. And then in comes Jesus and willingly trades places with him. I say willingly because God could have said no. Jesus, we read this last week. At, at, at a word, all of heaven's angels would have come down. But he willingly traded places with him. Jesus died his death. Jesus paid his penalty. 
which means that through faith in Christ, Jesus dies our death. Jesus paid our penalty. And we do nothing to deserve it. Just like Barabbas, we just stand condemned and guilty before Jesus, after Jesus. It's a different story. Paul says this in Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Like remember, we are murdering, lying, adulterous thieves. We bring nothing to the table but our own sin. Even our faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 2. That the Holy Spirit moves in us and brings us to life. We can't even claim that. Like, here's the truth that we often miss. God is not looking down at us and going, you know what? I'm going to give them a pass because they were a good person or because they were really nice to people. They went to church every week. They, they, they were raised in a Christian home. They, they gave a whole lot of money to the church. They read their Bible every day. Do you know what those are? Those are all works. Those are us trying to be justified by our actions. And the truth is, Bible says by grace, through faith, that exchanges our sin and shame for Jesus's righteousness, for his innocence. That's what exchanges us with Jesus, is faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him this great exchange might happen that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes our sin and in exchange we get his righteousness through faith. That is the great exchange. And can I just say, praise God, hallelujah, forever and ever and ever. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care and God bless.